Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. And so, if he is romantic, he tries to change it. And even if he is not romantic personally, he is very apt to spread discontent among those who are. H. L. Mencken. Everybody, CJ here, your one man revolution, guerrilla scholar, warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age. Here with episode 183 of the Dangerous History Podcast, the five year anniversary of the DHP, a soft reboot. And first, a disclaimer. As should be clear if you've glanced at the show notes, this is not a historical narrative or historical analysis episode in almost any way, although I'll be talking about a little bit of things that connect to some of those themes, but that's really not what this episode is. And if that's all you want from this show, then by all means, feel free to skip this episode. This episode is going to be primarily a combination of retrospection and reflection, including some personal things, and then some announcements about things coming up in the near future that I'm working on. Now, I don't know when I actually recorded the first episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, but I believe it was approximately a couple of weeks before I published it. And I do know that I published it on June 5th, 2014. So this episode is going to be published on June 5th, 2019. And I'm going to be, in a way, doing what I often do in regard to other people to my own journey, which is looking back at the past in order to understand the present and then try to look forward to see what's to come. 
But before I do that, I just want to remind everyone that I'm going to be at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest again this year. This is going to be my third time going, and as with the other two times, I'm not only going to be there, I'm going to be presenting. This year's presentation from me at the fest is going to be a DHP Villains feature on Harry J. Anslinger, who was, if you don't know, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the predecessor of the DEA, from 1930 to 1962. So for over 30 years, Republican, Democrat presidents came and went. He's still there. He's almost kind of like a mini J. Edgar Hoover in that regard. Anslinger was running the Bureau of Narcotics, and he's probably most famous for being a major force behind the U.S. government's decision to ban marijuana starting in the 1930s, and he's arguably the key architect of many of the early phases of the war on drugs. He also was, among other things, a virulent racist and xenophobe and all-around in many ways nasty dude. And he also, I've come to discover, and I'm still digging into this, he also had some interesting links to what we might call the clandestine netherworld of U.S. intelligence. So, very interesting, and if you have beliefs that are at all in the ballpark of mine, very nefarious sort of a character, Harry Anslinger. So if you want to meet me in person and attend this presentation, make sure to make it to Delton, Michigan for the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest this year. And of course, if you're unable to make it, my presentation will be published as a DHP episode after I get back. And speaking of the fest, here's my good buddy Lou with an ad about it. And of course, I'll link to the website for the fest in this episode show notes as well. It is your right, your duty and your privilege to attend the 7th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest held at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo, from Thursday, June 20th to Monday, June 24th. This is the most important Liberty Fest of our lifetimes. This is both an adult and family-friendly camping event. There will be all sorts of outdoor activities, games, discussions, and bacon. Lots of bacon. Scheduled speakers will include C.J. Kilmer of the Dangerous History Podcast, and Brett Vinat from School Sucks. Make sure your voice is heard by rounding up your friends and family and getting them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest.org. Dogs welcome, longer leashes recommended, and a vote for Anarchon is really a vote for Agorafest. All right, so let's jump into this episode. Now, in the title, I call it a soft reboot. And in many ways, that's what this episode really is. It's kind of like a soft reboot for those of you who know what that term means. And for those of you who don't, here's what it means as per Wikipedia. There are kind of two usages of the term soft reboot. There's the original one, which is this. A warm reboot, where a computer system restarts without the need to interrupt the power. Well, that has some kind of metaphorical relevance to what I mean here. But the second one is even more directly relevant, which is a reboot, parentheses, fiction, in which continuity is retained. And from Wikipedia's entry for just the term reboot by itself, we have the following couple of excerpts. Quote, it has been described as a way to rebrand or restart an entertainment universe that has already been established. Reboots cut out non-essential elements associated with the pre-established franchise and started anew, distilling it down to the core elements that made the source material popular. 
For audiences, reboots allow easier entry for newcomers unfamiliar with earlier titles in a series. End quote. So that's just the term reboot. Those last few lines I shared with you. So again, soft reboot, the idea is we're not destroying the continuity. We're not throwing out the past. We're just trying to kind of give it a new phase, a shot in the arm sort of a thing, maybe. We're trying to give an extra jolt to the DHP to take it forward to the next level, hopefully attracting new fans and making previous fans like it even more. We're not going to do the Last Jedi subverting expectations thing where we shit all over what actually made people fans of it in the first place. We're not doing that with the dangerous history. Let me be clear, as Obama used to say. So we're trying to attract new fans, maybe make even bigger fans out of existing fans, turn them into super fans, and do this without throwing out the past or without changing anything really fundamental about what the show really has been about and what's made it what it has been. So if you've loved the show up till now, don't worry, we're not changing anything that's really at the heart of it. I'm not going to suddenly start sounding like an establishment historian or court historian or any kind of that garbage. In other words, we're definitely keeping the dangerous part of dangerous history. The part that's alluded to by that Mencken quote that I read at the beginning of the episode. And if anything, we're going to try to keep upping the danger factor whenever and wherever possible. Now, I want to switch gears here and talk for just a little while about some personal things and talk about changes I've gone through, many of them within the past six months to a year, and some of them just larger changes that have happened since I started this show way back when. So, in general, I'm in a much better place personally, financially, any way you want to think about it, from what I was when I started this show back in 2014. I was really strapped financially at the time. Part of why I started the show on such a shoestring with such, you know, cruddy equipment and minimalist stuff and everything was I had no choice. I was working myself to the bone, teaching lots and lots of what are known as overloads, meaning basically overtime extra classes just to try to keep my head above water. And I was oftentimes not even really doing that from month to month. In addition, I had all kinds of health and psychological issues that were really messing me up, and I was in many ways in a dark place. And this show has been part of, though by no means the only thing, but part of the process of slowly, painstakingly over the past five years, turning these things around and solving some problems that could be solved and at least figuring out how to manage the things that can't be solved much better. So since starting this show, and in particular since it started to bring in some real money for me, I've been able to gradually back off on my course load at the day job, first by whittling down and eventually not teaching any so-called overloads, and then starting this current year by backing off from teaching any summer school. And I'm slowly but steadily pursuing my goal of self-liberation from the day job so that I can eventually do podcasting and other related things, other forms of media production, writing, that kind of stuff, hopefully full-time as a truly free-range human. I really, really want to make this happen. And some of the stuff I'm announcing in this episode that you're listening to are things that I see as some of the next milestones on the journey to help me do this. Along the way since starting this show, I have gotten much, much better at managing 
not curing because I don't believe these things can ever really be cured, but managing my two biggest psychological problems, which tend to be anxiety and depression. And at least some of helping me to better manage these issues, by no means all, but part of it has been having the podcast as an outlet for my creativity and for just sort of expressing my thoughts and beliefs and takes on important issues in the world and history and all that. And so I just want to say to all of you, especially all of you who have been listening for a long time, or who've listened to every episode at least once, whenever it is you may have discovered the show, I want to say to all of you, thank you. Thank you for, in some ways, being kind of my bartenders, my therapists, that sort of thing. Because this outlet has helped me to improve myself and heal myself in certain important ways. And while there have been gradual positive improvements in many areas of my life since I started doing the Dangerous History podcast, particularly in the last year, and especially in the last six months, on the personal side of things, a whole bunch of things have come together. Some of them things that have been in the works for a long time. These things have come together and made huge differences in a positive sense to my life and my mental and physical health. And those of you who are friends with me on Facebook already know some of these things, and some of them I've not really talked about publicly up till now. But among other things, as many of you know, because I did mention it on the show, I moved a few months ago back uh, at the end of March of this year. I moved. I moved one county south from where I used to live. I moved from St. Augustine down to Palm Coast, still in northeast Florida. And while that was a giant piece of work and a huge amount of stress, moving a family of four, even though it's only one county away, moving a family of four out of a house that they have lived in for the past 10 years into a totally different house, that is no easy task. And any of you who have done that sort of a move with a family that size or larger after having lived where you had lived for many, many years, you know what I'm talking about. It I've heard people, mental health professionals, say that a move can sometimes be as much stress as the death of a close loved one, and I can definitely understand that. But on the positive side, the move has had a lot of different benefits for me and my family, some of which directly pertain to this podcast and trying to move forward with it, like I now have a much larger, better home office studio room setup. And while it's still kind of in the works, it's sort of an ongoing project of getting everything unpacked and set up the way I want it to be. It is as it takes shape, as I slowly chisel some order out of the chaos, it is already starting to be a better location, a better physical facility for me to do the Dangerous History podcast and other sorts of things like it. In addition, I've become debt-free. Student loans, gone. Car, paid off. Credit cards, paid off. And currently, in the new place, I'm just renting, and for now, that's fine. So I don't even really have home mortgage debt. Now, we will either move into a home that we buy or even build a new home probably in a few years. So I'll have a mortgage, but in the system that we have to live under, mortgage debt is in many ways the least problematic form of debt, especially if you 
have it in a place where you're not upside down in value and where the home is holding its value or appreciating and it actually is a place that you want to live in in the meantime, I don't see mortgage debt as being a huge problem in those cases. Obviously, if it's a place you don't really want to live or if you end up upside down or whatever, it is a problem. Or if you bite off more than you can chew and you can't make your payments. But anyway, I'm now debt free after having been up to my eyeballs in debt for about the last 14, 15 years. I've also finally won huge major victories in my physical health, particularly in the last six months. I've been significantly overweight for most of my life and in the category of morbidly obese for most of my adult life. And I've struggled with it. I've never been a person to just give up. If I did, I'd I'd weigh twice as much as I ever did at my heaviest. But I could never have more than a partial and temporary victory against it. And before you tell me, oh, I need to try your diet or exercise program or whatever, hold your thoughts. I'm not interested. Odds are, whatever it is, I tried it or something very similar to it and probably did so multiple times. Considering I've been launching repeated, varied attempts at weight loss and health improvement for literally 30 years. But towards the end of last year, I finally decided to try something drastic, something totally different, something I hadn't done before after a lot of thinking, a lot of research, and a lot of consulting with doctors and and getting, you know, feedback from loved ones and so on. I decided to go ahead and get gastric bypass surgery. And I did in December of 2018. And those of you who can remember me saying I was going to go under the knife, that's what it was. And it went better than I ever could have hoped for me. I've had no negative complications. And in about the last six months, I've lost almost all of my extra weight. I've lost, as of this recording, 112 pounds in about six months. And I've done it while being monitored to make sure, you know, I'm well hydrated, my vitamin levels are good. In other words, I'm not, I'm not dropping this weight in a way that's damaging my health. And I've got, you know, multiple doctors checking everything, keeping everything, you know, under watch to make sure that I'm getting good nutrition and I'm well hydrated and all that kind of stuff. But basically, not only did I get the surgery, I've been able to very closely follow all of their nutritional guidelines and all that, and I've been able to exercise a ton. And of course, it gets easier as the weight falls off. As I get stronger, it gets easier to do more. And so losing 112 pounds in about six months is way better even than most people do with gastric bypass. And long story short, This has been a completely positive revolution for virtually every aspect of my life, starting with mental and physical health, and then, of course, radiating out from there. And so I'm fitter and healthier and feel better and have more energy than ever in my entire life. I've had significant weight problems since I was like in kindergarten or something. And again, I've never had more than partial temporary short-lived successes, you know, lose 20, 30 pounds, eventually fall off whatever wagon I was on and put it all back plus some interest. And I finally did the nuclear option 
and it worked. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I ran a 5K, much of which took place on the big memorial bridge across the St. John's River in Palatka, which is a pretty large, steep bridge. It's about three quarters of a mile across, and the race went across it and back as part of the route for the 5K. Which, if you live in the mountains, doesn't seem like much, but to a Florida boy, a, a long, tall, steep bridge is, you know, might as well be K2. And I met all of my personal goals for the 5K and then some. I finished it without having to stop to walk once, running the whole way. And I finished it in under 30 minutes. Which, if you're a lifelong runner who can run a 5K in under 20 minutes, may not seem like much. But six months ago, I was morbidly obese and could barely run to the end of my driveway. Not only that, I placed fourth in the category of men ages 35 to 39 in the race. And I was 41st overall. I forget how many people were in the race, but I think it was at least a couple hundred, if I'm not mistaken. So, and I've been doing not just running and other forms of cardio, I've been doing strength training, I've been doing yoga, and it's just been an incredible journey. And when I get back from my trips, which are going to take up much of the rest of June, First, a personal trip I'll probably mention a little bit more about later. And second, my trip to Michigan for the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. Once I get back from all that, I'm planning on getting back into martial arts, which is something that I did a bit as a teenager when I was relatively on a winning streak in the health and fitness and weight department for a few years. And still, it was only I never lost all the weight that I needed to lose. But I lost enough, you know, I could I could run back then. I could have run a 5K. And, uh, you know, I did a little bit of judo and jujitsu. And so now, finally, I'm fit enough that I'm comfortable going back to martial arts. So I'm planning on doing that towards the end of June. And I'm super happy and excited about it. I still want to lose a bit more weight. I still want to try and see just how low I can get my body fat percentage down. I'm in the low 20s as of my last doctor's visit. I'm going to see if I can get it below 20, maybe, maybe even down to 15%. That'd be pretty good. We'll see. So I'm still planning on losing a little bit more weight, but not a ton. Most of the weight I needed to lose is gone. All the health problems I had are either entirely gone or at the very least hugely alleviated. And like I said, I have way more physical energy and focus. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about all this here, though I do plan on covering more about this story and my experience in much more detail for anyone who might be interested in a second podcast that I'm working on launching later in the summer, and more on that later in this episode. But the Dangerous History podcast has, at least in part, been helpful in helping my mental mental and physical health and even helping my financial health, which of course, you know, goes along with my mental and physical health. Now, it's been true that in recent months, a lot of these things, especially things like surgery, recovering from it, and then dealing with moving and getting set up in a new location, all these things have diverted some of my time and energy from the DHP, and in particular have prevented me from doing things like lots of recording of new episodes. I've continued to work the whole time behind the scenes throughout it all on things like research and planning and composition and so on. But now that a lot of those kind of disruptions have been behind me and I'm on the far side of them and starting to get all the benefits now having dealt with the at least temporary negatives of the disruptions and time sucks and energy diversions and so on, now, especially that that's 
in the rear view. And now at this moment, I'm on summer break and I'm no longer teaching any summer classes. I'm ready to really pour some effort into the DHP and other projects to try to reach the next level in pursuing my goal of liberation from the day job. Now, I want to get back into sort of looking back on the DHP itself. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the things I think I've learned and gotten better at and how my approach to things has mostly not changed, but on some particulars has changed over the years. There's been a little bit of evolution. First off, I think I've succeeded in learning a lot about how to make podcasts, including things like my research and presentation skills for it, and also, of course, my audio production know-how. And I've done my best to upgrade my software and hardware as needed to keep tweaking my results, make things a little better. And I think overall, I can say that I've gradually, but hopefully continually improved the quality of the show in various ways. There's always, of course, room for further improvement, and I do plan on continuing that process indefinitely into the future. But of course, the more you progress, the smaller each increment of improvement tends to get. I'm sure you all know this if you've ever had any particular knowledge or skill area where, you know, in, say, the early years of learning a martial art, you make the most dramatic, you know, week-to-week, month-to-month leaps and skills. Same thing if you're learning to play a musical instrument or something like that. And as you get better, hopefully you continue improving if you keep putting in the effort, but it's relatively minor adjustments of improvement the better you get. You know, year to year, a black belt hopefully still keeps learning stuff, but it's proportionately less dramatic than the gains they were making in the early to middle part of their journey. My basic principles and beliefs regarding things like ideology and history haven't radically changed, though they've evolved a little bit in certain ways. And I would say that my thoughts and beliefs on certain specific issues have evolved a bit too. And I'm just going to mention a few of these here that came to mind over the past day or two as I was sort of planning this episode and thinking about this. I'm still definitely primarily interested in history that the establishment would rather you not know. History that helps you not only learn the past, but understand the present and prepare for the future. History that in one way or another has the potential, at least, for personal empowerment. And history that is dangerous in the way alluded to by that Mencken quote from the beginning of this show. And some more things that are the same. I'm still more interested in my triangle of money, power, and violence than I am in the conventional academic historian's iron triangle of race, class, gender. By the way, just as an aside, speaking of race, class, gender, the SJW thing has completely exploded since the days when I was making my first DHP episodes. And one thing I've really noticed in observing it that struck me is how in the race-class-gender triangle of kind of conventional left-wing academia, class has largely dropped out of the picture and out of the equation. All the recent SJWs really seem to care about is things related to race and gender, as far as I can tell. And so you get these weird things where they seem to think that, for example, a super wealthy gay person or a super wealthy black person is somehow, by definition, always much more oppressed than a dirt poor white heterosexual person, especially if it's a male, which strikes me as very odd. I mean, the notion that like 
Barack Obama's daughters are somehow oppressed and underprivileged relative to a white heterosexual male who is born and raised in abject poverty in Appalachia, for example. That to me is just insane. But that seems to be what happened, is that you used to have this more kind of balanced race-class-gender thing, and then class just kind of, for the most part, disappeared, or at least became part of the background. And for what it's worth, again, just sort of a side note, I've noticed that the relatively principled left-wingers that I actually kind of like, at least somewhat, are the ones who seem not to have forgotten about class. And I may not agree with their solutions on every issue, but I at least mostly agree with a lot of their diagnoses of the problems. And maybe not coincidentally, these are also often the same leftists who are pretty good on what to me are the most important issues, things like war, imperialism, the police state, civil liberties, and so on. But anyway, I still think economics are very important to understanding history, but I probably place slightly less emphasis on economics now than I did back in 2014. And in general, I now prefer more terms like individualist anarchist and market anarchist to describe myself and my views rather than anarcho-capitalist, which I was more comfortable with and more quick to use back when I was starting the Dangerous History podcast. I mean, I don't hate the term anarcho-capitalist strongly enough that I'll go out of my way to like correct someone if they refer to me as that. But if I'm asked or if I'm just describing myself, I'll say either individualist anarchist or else market anarchist. And I don't want to go into a giant thing here as to why, but I'll just say a little bit. And if you want more on this idea of market anarchist, a book I always recommend is the book Markets Not Capitalism, and I'll put a link to it on Amazon in the show notes of this episode. But anyway, I can't remember the name of the listener who pointed out to me years ago, this distinction between anarcho-capitalist and market anarchist. It was an email several years ago, but whoever you are, you know who you are, and thank you. And please forgive me for forgetting your name. But anyway, some of my reasoning behind this distinction is, first off, historically, in the late 19th and early 20th century, when the word capitalism first began to be used, it generally has been used to mean not a true, unfettered, free market but in fact the existing systems of kind of state corporatist capitalism or what you might call crony capitalism. And there is a strong case to be made that this was in many ways the original meaning of the word capitalism was state corporate capitalism. And another thing that I think about this distinction is that in the term anarcho-capitalist, it's capitalist that is the noun. While anarchism is kind of demoted to being a a prefixing descriptive adjective. And to me, this reverses the importance of the two concepts in my own head. To me, the anarchism part is more important, and the market or capitalist or whatever you want to call it part is less important than the anarchism. So to me, while I do believe that a truly freed market is both the morally and practically best way to organize a society, it's less important to me the market or capitalist, if by capitalist you mean market part, and the more important part is the anarchist part, meaning without rulers. So what I'm saying is I prefer to have anarchist be the noun, the root, 
of the term, with some sort of adjective specifying what school of anarchism, if necessary, and that I think that uh, market is a better descriptor of what I'm actually in favor of, rather than the word capitalist, which, for the reasons I've already mentioned, and also for the reason that capitalist tends to denote a favoritism of truly privileged uh, elites of the status quo, and at least implies, if it doesn't outright always mean, favoring the established interests, large firms, etc., all that stuff. So anyway, those are just some of the reasons why I prefer market anarchist to anarcho-capitalist for myself. Now, this may seem like splitting hairs, especially to people who aren't any sort of anarchist, but nonetheless, it's just something where my thinking on things has evolved in some minor but perhaps important way over the last four years. And just a few historical issues that come to mind related to American history, which of course I've covered more than other realms of history on the show so far. Thinking back to some of my early episodes and how certain things I may have covered differently or stated differently if I did them today. I used to overall think in a little bit more paleoconservative slash constitutionalist type terms on some issues of American history back then than I would now. And just to give you one specific example of this, early on in the show, I used to be somewhat in agreement with the argument that comes from some people who are libertarians and some people who are sort of paleoconservatives, that the so-called large policy of guys like Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century was a real drastic change, a 180-degree divergence from a previous kind of isolationist, anti-imperialist consensus in American leadership. I now no longer would see that that way. Instead, I now see much more continuity than abrupt shifts of direction throughout American history. And I'd see, for example, the large policy not as an abrupt change, but more as an acceleration of trends and tendencies that were already long existent in the American mind, in the American system, in the American elites. So, for example, I would now see the United States as being more definitely imperial since its very inception. You know, people who espouse this more kind of paleoconservative-leaning view that I used to be more sympathetic to will often cite things like John Quincy Adams' famous speech from the 1820s when he was Secretary of State, in which he said things like the famous line that the U.S. shouldn't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, etc. But people often point to these and say, see, you know, the American leadership used to be much more isolationist and anti-imperialist. Look at this speech. And it's a great speech. I really like it in many ways. But these people fail to note that many of these same guys, these first few generations of American leaders, who often spoke in this way, sounding very isolationist and anti-imperialist, in practice were often very aggressive expansionists and imperialists, as was John Quincy Adams himself. These more paleoconservative-leaning people will often do the same thing regarding the Founding Fathers and their supposed anti-imperialism and isolationism. They'll point out the anti-imperialist and isolationist-sounding pronouncements of people like Thomas Jefferson, while ignoring or downplaying their many aggressively imperial actions when they were actually in power, and even kind of turning a blind eye towards some of these statements they made that contradicted and sounded much more imperialist. So, 
I now no longer see imperialism in which you extend into contiguous land in your neighborhood as somehow being less imperialist than the overseas version of imperialism. I just see them as two different aspects or manifestations or phases of the same thing, the same phenomenon, namely imperialism. Another way that my thinking has changed since the early days of the show is that I used to be a bit more sympathetic to the Confederates and the Confederacy than I am now. But since I've beaten that particular horse into the ground, I think, in the Civil War series, I don't feel the need to get into that here as well. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. So those are just some of my reflections on some of the ways my thinking on certain things has evolved since the early days of this show as I look back on them. Now I want to talk about the present and the future, things that I'm putting out soon or working on or changes I'm going to be making or have made. And one of them is that I'm now going to have new, more levels, different levels of support for the Dangerous History Podcast and my work here via Patreon and Subscribestar and perhaps in the future other platforms as well. So I used to just have one basic level of support, five bucks a month, that I called Scholar Warrior. And while people were welcome to pledge more if they wanted to, that was the basic level. As of this recording, I've now got it structured into four different levels of support. And if you go to my Patreon or Subscribestar pages now for the Dangerous History Podcast, you'll now see these different levels there. So I added a lower one that I call Apprentice Scholar Warrior. This is $2 per month. And for $2 per month, you will get access to all of the so-called vintage DHP episodes, which are the first 52 episodes of the show no longer available to the general public. And of course, aside from that, you'll also get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep the Dangerous History Podcast, a going concern, and my personal gratitude for helping to keep things afloat. So if you just want to pledge a little bit, get a little bit of bonus content, be able to listen to those early episodes that are no longer publicly available, there you go. Two bucks a month. The next level, five bucks per month, I now call Journeyman Scholar Warrior. This used to just be called Scholar Warrior. So for five bucks per month, aside from the title of Journeyman Scholar Warrior, you will receive the benefits of the $2 level, right? Of the, you'll continue to have access to the vintage DHP episodes as you have for five bucks a month for quite a long time. Plus, you will also, aside from that, get access to special bonus DHP episodes that are exclusive just to supporters of the show, and you will have access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out. And in addition to that, you'll be able to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. So the five buck per month level is still the same benefits, just a different name. Now I'm adding above that, as of now, two additional higher levels. 
for 15 bucks per month, you'll get the title of just plain Scholar Warrior without a prefix. So for 15 bucks per month, what will you get? You'll get all the benefits I've already listed, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. More explanation of what that's going to be in a moment. And initially, I'm planning to limit this to just 250 spots on Patreon. Now, it's still going to be probably another couple months at least before I start releasing Dangerous Lyceum course lectures there, because I'm still in the research and planning stages of it. But if you want to start supporting me at a higher level, if you want to get one of those 250 spots and make sure you've got it, feel free to sign up as soon as you want to. Just know it's probably going to be at least around a couple months until I start putting out those course lectures. And then I also put in one other higher level of support for those of you who really want to make a major contribution to what I'm doing here. And I may add some higher ones down the road as I can come up with and make available more and more benefits. But as of right now, I've got one more for $25 per month. You get the title of Master Scholar Warrior, and you'll get all the benefits up through 15 bucks a month, plus some additional benefits, which are still to be determined but we'll probably include something like access to maybe a monthly video chat or something like that, maybe some other additional things. And this is initially going to be limited to just 50 spots on Patreon. And those benefits, they're not there yet, but, you know, they're going to hopefully be available within a couple months or so. So there you go. Now, I mentioned the Dangerous History Lyceum. What is that? This is something that I'm fully announcing for the first time here on this episode. These are going to be audio lecture courses, maybe with some video in the future as well. We'll see. I have to master the hardware and software of video production, which is mostly still new to me. But these will be taught by me. Maybe down the road, I'll work out deals with other people to adjunct for me as well. But at least for the time being, it'll be taught by me. And initially, like I kind of already indicated, they're going to be available to higher level supporters of the DHP on platforms like Patreon and Subscribestar for 15 bucks per month or more. Eventually in the future, I may also sell these courses a la carte as one-time purchases once I've gotten the technical infrastructure of doing that squared away. But at least initially, it's going to be just, you know, a higher level benefit for financial supporters of the show. Now, I've often had listeners say to me that they wish they could attend one of my classes in person. And I usually tell them that aside from, you know, obviously there are limits of time and geography keeping them out of my classroom. I often tell them also that attending one of my regular conventional classes in a college setting is actually probably not going to be as great and interesting as my podcast is because of the limitations of having to fulfill a preordained course outline and many other limitations that come about when you're teaching a conventional class in a conventional institutional setting. So I eventually figured out that if I did my own online courses, not only would I have something else that I could make available to higher level supporters of the show and eventually maybe sell a la carte, but that by making my own non-graded, non-credit online courses that are totally voluntary and get rid of all those elements of involuntariness in education that I talked about in my presentation at Harvard last year, 
but that do have the elements of a typical classroom in the sense of having this somewhat structured, unified, large body of knowledge on a particular topic. You know, something that's more structured and more like a teaching situation even than the podcast regular episodes are. That I'd end up having all of the pluses of a quote-unquote class while removing most or perhaps all of the problems that you get in a conventional class setting, not just those of time and space, but also having those external institutional constraints on things like content and creativity and so forth. So in other words, the Dangerous History Lyceum is going to be courses taught by me exactly as I want to do them, with no limitations and no compromises. How's it going to be different from regular podcast episodes? Well, it's obviously going to be similar in some ways. It's going to be me talking about history and hopefully simultaneously entertaining and educating you at the same time, but perhaps it'll be a little bit more leaning towards the education rather than entertainment, a little bit less effort on storytelling and drama and that sort of thing. Not to say that those things will be entirely lacking. I think you have to have some of that in history, but I think most of you probably get what I mean. It'll be a little bit more of a class type of a thing in terms of how it's structured and presented than would a typical podcast episode by me. But I just want to talk a little bit more about this idea of the Dangerous History Lyceum. Basically, I want to answer the question, why Lyceum? Why not Academy, University, etc.? Now, partly it's because I don't see many, if at all, kind of informal schools or classes, like what I'm trying to do here, that are out there currently that are using the term Lyceum. So it's relatively more unique or closer to unique, as opposed to there are a lot of different unconventional class systems or things out there that will use terms like academy or university and so on. So that's part of it, to just make it a little bit more differentiated in terms of branding. But there are other reasons, too, that have to do with the roots of the word itself. Lyceum, you may know, was the term used for the school that was founded by Aristotle as opposed to the academy, which is the term that was used for the school that was founded by Plato. And while I'm not a strict Aristotelian, I definitely, between the two of them, have way more sympathy with Aristotle and his philosophy, in most aspects, than I do with Plato and his philosophy. So I'd rather use a term associated with Aristotle than a term associated with Plato. I'm also not crazy about using the term university in some way. Although, I have to say, I do like what Brett Vinod is doing with his upcoming course, Thingamajig, which, by the way, I'm part of, where he turned it into university. That's clever. I'm not that clever. Um, so I'm not going to use the word university uh, in any way in what I'm doing. I like what Brett did, but obviously I don't want to uh, use the same term. And historically, I'm not crazy about the university, not just because of what these things are today and the many problems with them today, many of which a lot of you know a lot about, as I do, but also because historically, universities as institutions have often been, to one degree or another, pretty anti-freedom. I mean... The earliest universities were established by the church in medieval Europe at a time when the Catholic Church was basically kind of a state and was, in reality, kind of the established church from Poland westward to Spain. 
and most universities founded subsequently, if they were not founded by a church authority of some sort, were established either entirely or at least in part with some sort of state authority or state backing, or the backing of a monarch or something like that. And so, while I would definitely admit that you can find specific scholars or groups of scholars throughout history advancing real thinking and real critical thinking and independent thought and freedom of various types at various universities at various times throughout history, I'd also point out that those tend to be the exceptions rather than the rule, and that quote-unquote universities historically have, not just recently, but most of the time, had as their kind of default setting a hell of a lot of intellectual conformity and serving of the interests of political or economic elites or both. So, I didn't want to use the term university, in part for that reason. I also have to say, I like the term lyceum for another reason. And I like it because of the so-called lyceum movement that existed in sort of mid-19th century America. And you can look this up if you don't know anything about it. It's pretty interesting. It's something I've long kind of had an interest in and sort of a soft spot for, but which I admit I haven't done a huge amount of research on as of this recording. It's something I keep meaning to kind of dig more into because it looks like a very interesting historical topic. But I'll just turn to Wikipedia briefly as a basic reference source on this. Quote, The Lyceums, Mechanics Institutes, and Agriculture Organizations flourished in the United States before and after the Civil War. They were important in the development of adult education in America. During this period, hundreds of informal associations were established for the purpose of improving the social, intellectual, and moral fabric of society. The Lyceum movement featured lectures, dramatic performances, class instructions, and debates by noted lecturers, entertainers, and readers. They would travel the Lyceum circuit, going from town to town or state to state, to entertain, speak, or debate in a variety of locations, never staying in one place for too long. Their appearances were open to the public, which caused them to contribute significantly to the education of the adult American in the 19th century. End quote. So this is more in line with what I have in mind. Now, this is virtual, this is online, and I am charging for it because I have to support myself somehow by doing all the work that I'm going to be doing here. But in most ways, this, even more so than Aristotle's philosophical school, which was at least to some degree a state-supported institution, as I understand it, being backed by Alexander the Great in some capacity, this American 19th century Lyceum movement is really what makes me like the term Lyceum and want to use it to describe my upcoming Dangerous History online courses. I like the fact that it is informal with, from what I know, little to no state involvement. It's mostly kind of people with at least some degree of a DIY spirit, active learners, adults actively trying to learn more and make themselves better people. That's really in line with what I hope this can contribute to. Now, I already have planned and I'm already in the research and planning phases of the first course that I'm going to be doing. I have others in mind for the future, of course, but the first course 
that I'm going to be building for this is going to be called Rise of the American Empire. And this ties in somewhat to what I was saying earlier about how my thoughts on some things have evolved. I'm going to be telling the story of the United States from the viewpoint of imperial history, from American independence through to the recent past, maybe even through to the present, we'll see. So I'm going to be dropping the needle on the story at the end of the American War of Independence. I could have included the colonial period because basically the colonists of North America were frontline imperial shock troops of the British Empire, and in a few cases of the French or Spanish Empire. But I decided that I'd make the course too unwieldy if I dropped the needle further back than independence. And also, I'm thinking that in the future, I'm probably going to do a regular DHP huge mega series on the rise and fall of the British Empire. And so I can talk about colonial American imperialism in that context in order to scratch that particular itch. So in this course, Rise of the American Empire, I'm going to be looking at the growth and evolution of the United States through the same sort of analytical lenses that one would normally use when looking at the empires in history that no one really doubts or questions were empires. So, you know, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, etc. That's how I'm going to be looking at the empire in denial that is the United States of America. So we're going to be looking at expansionism, meaning taking over new territory, people, and resources in both formal and informal cases, formal meaning legally annexing territory in some fashion, informal meaning establishing control or drastic influence over a people, resources, or land without formally legally annexing it. And we're also going to be looking at what I call internal imperialism, which means when a political authority already has formal legal jurisdiction over territory, people, resources somewhere, but then builds its power and control over those things. So to give you an example, you know, you, you grow the empire's size, but then you also consolidate your power and control and exploitation of the things that you've first established your quote-unquote ownership over. So, for example, in the American case, one instance of this would be expanding into a particular territory out west, saying, oh, this is now legally part of the United States as far as the world is concerned. That's expansion, but then there's the process that follows, which is establishing control over it, building the physical and institutional infrastructure, maybe wiping out the natives, whatever it is that allows the empire to establish the reality of control and dominance and exploitation of the thing that it has already established a quote-unquote legal jurisdiction over. So this course is going to be pretty large. I don't know at this point how many actual classes or lectures it's going to be, but it's going to be covering, you know, over 200 years of history. And along the way, in telling this story, we're going to no doubt hit on many different aspects of military history, political history, diplomatic history, but also lots of other things like culture, high culture, popular culture, art, all these sorts of things, as well as the evolution of different ideologies and belief systems that have been part, in one way or another, of building the American empire. So, like I said, I'm already have been working on, for a while, the research and planning stages for this. And I'm 
trying to get to where I can start producing some of these lectures at least by the end of the summer. So stay tuned for that. Next, I want to briefly mention some of the things that I'm still currently working on. Some of these are things I've been saying I've been working on for a long time, and I'm not lying. I'm still working on them, but don't worry, I haven't forgotten about them or jettisoned them or aborted them. First thing, still working on the bonus episode for now Journeyman Scholar Warriors and Up on a lot of the guns and tactics of the Civil War. That's still in the works. As with so many things, it keeps expanding as I work on it and find new sources and whatever. So I know I've been saying I'm working on it for a long, long time, and I still am. And uh, the one upside is when it does finally come out, it should be quite large. May even be broken into two bonus episodes. We'll see. Also currently working on my presentation I mentioned earlier that I'm going to be doing in Michigan on Harry Anslinger, a DHP villain's hit piece coverage on him. Also still up to my eyeballs in research and planning for what is going to be an extensive many-part series Another DHP villain's hit piece, much anticipated, I know, on Woodrow Wilson. I've been talking about this one forever. The pile of sources on him is just tremendous and always growing, but hopefully when it comes to production, it will be worth the wait. Also, like I sort of already said, I'm currently working on research and planning for my first DHL course, Rise of the American Empire. And I'm working on one more major thing that's going to be coming up in the relatively near future, and that is coming soon. I'm hoping to officially launch sometime in July, perhaps August at the latest. I'm going to be launching a second podcast. It's going to be called the Guerrilla Scholar Warrior Podcast. And it's going to be dealing with things that I've touched on in this podcast in a number of ways in the past, but things that are separate enough from history that, and things that I wanted to get into from more angles and in more detail that I decided it was time to spin it off into its own show. And so the basic idea of this is going to be a show dealing with all sorts of different topics related in one way or another to the themes of self-improvement, self-cultivation, self-empowerment, self-reliance, and various forms of self-defense, both physical and non-physical. So I'm going to be presenting a wide variety of shows related to these basic topics and themes. Not from the point of view of myself as some sort of master or guru who knows everything about these things, but someone who's at best just a journeyman on the path. Just a guy like any one of you who puts his pants on one leg at a time, who's pursuing these things, who's pursuing this ideal, who's pursuing these knowledge and skill areas who's always trying to learn more, make himself better in some way, and also trying to share what he's learned so far with anyone else who's interested. Like the DHP, it's going to be a variety show as far as format goes. I'm planning on having some solo episodes as well as guest episodes. Some episodes will be shorter. No doubt some will be much longer. Some will be very practical nuts and bolts, while some will be more introspective, more personal, that sort of thing. And so. In the spirit of all that, I present to you, as the remainder of this episode, the audio, first published, if memory serves, sometime way back in January of 2015, so about four and a half years ago now, of DHP episode 48, Introduction to Taoism and the Scholar-Warrior Ideal. 
in which I first started sketching my concept of the Guerrilla Scholar Warrior. The concept, the ideal that is obviously inspiring my upcoming second podcast. And remember that this episode that you're going to hear in a moment, this old cruddy audio episode, but I still stand by the content, the heart of it. This episode is just one of the first 52 episodes of the show, Vintage DHP episodes, that you can get access to for any amount of support on Patreon or Subscribestar from $2 per month on up. So I hope you enjoy. I'm going to be leaving in just a couple of days on a trip to the mountains of western Montana. And then shortly after I return from that, I'm going to be heading up to Deltona, Michigan for the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, where I hope to see many of you in person. And by the way, given what I told you earlier in this episode about my personal transformation, you may barely recognize me. I'm literally about two-thirds of the man I used to be. So, before I sign off and turn you over to me from four and a half years ago, I do just want to say thank you, sincerely, to any and all of you who've helped or supported this show in any way including financially, but also just in terms of helping to spread the word and even just sending me encouragement through email or social media or whatever. I really hope to continue to get your help in all these sorts of ways. And if you've never supported the show, I hope you'll consider doing so if you find it valuable. Same thing if maybe you used to, but have stopped for any reason. I really hope you'll consider coming back if you still find value in the work that I do. And if you have been supporting the show, Maybe consider upping your level of support in light of these things I've shared with you in this episode about things coming up. Also, I'd just like to point out, I've made it five years, which is, you know, not as long as other people in the podcasting world, but it's way longer than most ever make it. So I think I've proven that I am in this for the long haul. I am playing the long game. I am fighting the long war. And so I hope that it gives you a sense that you can count on me to keep turning out quality work. Even if sometimes there's some time in between releases, know that I'm doing my best to make it so that when something does come out, it's worth it. So I really want to make it through the last phases of my personal long war of self-liberation, which will, if I do finally slog to the bitter end, enable me to free up enough of my time and energy, not just in the summer, but all year round, to increase the quantity of my podcasts and other production without sacrificing the quality. But I do need your help. Thanks. And now, from the dusty vaults of the history of the DHP itself, here is Vintage DHP Episode 48. Introduction to Taoism and the Scholar-Warrior Ideal. Today I'm going to be talking about Taoism, which is an ancient Chinese philosophy that I think nonetheless still has a lot of relevance to modern life. And a concept that comes out of Taoism, which is known as the Scholar-Warrior, and again, how this ancient concept can still have relevance to us in modern times. Now, Taoism, and it's spelled with a T, but pronounced with a D, although sometimes in more modern sources it is spelled with a D, but anyway. Uh, Taoism is a philosophy that emerged in ancient China sometime approximately 2,500 years ago. So, the historical context of when Taoism first emerged is the period of Chinese history known as the Period of Warring States, 
which ran from sometime in the 400s, depending on exactly which source you ask, until we have a solid exact ending date, though, 221 BC. So it runs from the 400s BC to 221 BC. And the reason we can pinpoint 221 BC is when the Warring States period is done in Chinese history is that that's when China gets unified for the first time by the Qin Dynasty, the the ruler who is known as Shi Huangdi or Qin Shi Huang, depending on whether uh, sort of which you know title kingly sort of a name you want to go with. But prior to the Qin unification of China during the Warring States period, you have several states. It varied a little bit from year to year exactly how many states there were battling almost continuously with each other for dominance of China. And for a couple hundred years, none of them could quite get the upper hand to take out all their rivals until finally the Qin dynasty did. Um, Historically, you oftentimes see more innovation when there's more decentralization than when there's unification. Unification um, eventually tends to lead to stagnation in terms of culture and technology. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. That's that's kind of a whole nother can of worms there. But um, So during this time period in Chinese history, you see the birth of three important and influential philosophical traditions or schools of thought in China, and they are legalism, Confucianism, and Taoism. Now, legalism is pretty straightforward. Legalism, in a way, it's not even really a philosophy, at least not in the, in the typical sense of the word. Legalism is simply concerned with making the state as powerful as possible and making the state's rules as uniform as possible. And it really doesn't worry about right and wrong, just or unjust. All it is is trying to make power as powerful as possible. Um, unfortunately, for much of Chinese history, it has been... Uh, at least for some of the, the nastiest parts in Chinese history, legalism has been the dominant ideology of the ruling class. With the exception of sometimes Confucianism has been dominant, and Confucianism is the second philosophical tradition that emerged in China around this time. And certainly Confucianism is a bit more humane and a bit more concerned with right and wrong than legalism, which is simply concerned with power. Um, unfortunately, in practice, though, Confucian rulers oftentimes are not a whole lot less oppressive and authoritarian than legalist-style rulers. Confucianism, of course, comes from the stage Kung Fu Tzu, whose Western, uh, westernized name is Confucius. And this is one of those guys that, you know, all sorts of people quote Confucius say, blah, blah, blah. And of course, most of the time, they're not really quoting an actual Confucius statement. But, you know, it's one of those where at least the name rings a bell to a lot of Western ears. And Confucianism primarily concerned itself with things like social relationships and traditional notions of morality. Now, Taoism is very different. It's different um, significantly from both legalism and Confucianism. Taoism, though, you know, it's hard to say for sure in in the murky uh, mists of ancient Chinese history exactly who may or may not have invented the concepts. Taoism is usually associated with a legendary scholar known as Lao Tzu, or sometimes in more modern sources, Lao Tzu. And Lao Tzu, a lot of times, is described as the inventor or creator of Taoism. I I think it's hard to say for sure. He certainly was the first guy to write down a lot of Taoist ideas and get them into the historical records. So, you know, he might as well be the originator of Taoism for all we know, because even if there was some sage before him spouting off a lot of these same concepts, we don't have the written record. 
And as somebody once said, if it's not written down, it's almost like it never happened. Now, Lao Tzu, we don't have exact years that he was born. He's a little bit of a hazy historical character. Some people have even speculated he might not have been real, that he might have been a fictional character or an amalgamation of multiple uh, sages in Chinese history. I don't know. You know, who, who knows for sure, right? Without a time machine. But he lived roughly around the same time period as Confucius. So would have been an adult, perhaps around the time of the Warring States period. Uh, the, the time the Warring States period began. And many believe he was a contemporary of Confucius, may have even been an acquaintance of Confucius. Other sources indicate he might have lived a generation or several generations uh, after Confucius. But be that as it may, you know, roughly the same time period in the general scheme of history, Lao Tzu and then later the, the other Taoist sages, uh, their response to the problems plaguing China was quite different. Lao Tzu's views on government were much more, what we might say in modern terms, uh, libertarian. And Taoism as a philosophy was, from the get-go, very focused on reducing the activity of the state and increasing the freedoms for the individual to find his own happiness and prosperity and ultimately to cultivate himself. So Confucius emphasized authority, tradition, and stability. Taoists, such as Lao Tzu, emphasized freedom and spontaneity. Murray Rothbard, by the way, arguably the greatest intellectual libertarian of the 20th century. I certainly believe that. He's one of my heroes. Murray Rothbard actually characterized Lao Tzu as being basically history's first known libertarian since so many of Lao Tzu's writings and sayings urged a minimal state. Some of Lao Tzu's famous work, the Tao Te Ching, seems to have been written as advice to rulers to, to be good rulers. And a lot of it is telling them basically to leave people alone. We'll have some quotes on that later on. Now, other Taoist sages who followed in the footsteps of Lao Tzu, such as Chuang, Chuang Tzu, um, whose sayings are collected in a book called The Way of Chuang Tzu, uh, Chuang Tzu elaborated on Lao Tzu's ideas and in some instances took them even further or in different directions. And in fact, Murray Rothbard characterized Chuang Tzu as being the world's first individualist anarchist. So to those of you who think ideas like anarchism and libertarianism are uh, uniquely Western, well, some non-Western societies do have these ideas in them. Sadly, for the freedoms of much of the Chinese population throughout Chinese history, uh, the Taoist ideas did not take hold in the ruling class very much. There's there's a few Chinese emperors that you can pick out who were kind of Taoist, and they tended to be the ones who were like the, the tax cutters and the, the free marketeers of their day. But um, sadly, uh, most Chinese rulers favored either Confucian philosophy or even worse from the standpoint of, of uh, freedom, legalist philosophy. So this Taoist philosophy... It's hard to pin down exactly. It's hard to define in a simple saying or sentence or whatever. So instead, what I'm going to do is talk about some of the key concepts you get when you read the sayings and the writings of these Taoist sages. So, of course, arguably the central concept to Taoism is the concept of Tao itself, T-A-O. This is generally conceived to mean something along the lines of way or path, meaning some sort of like ultimate natural force Although the Taoist sages themselves emphasize that you really can't put it into words. So, for example, um, Lao Tzu's very first statement in his famous work, the Tao Te Ching, says, The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. 
the name that can be named is not the eternal name, end quote. So right off the bat, if you think you can say exactly what it is in words, the words are not quite the same as the thing. And from a more modern Taoist scholar, a guy named Deng Ming Dao, who wrote an influential book called The Scholar Warrior, and more on that later, it's a, it's a book that um, affected my way of looking at things a great deal, and really got me thinking about this scholar warrior concept I'm going to share with you today. Uh, Deng Ming Dao writes in the, in the Scholar Warrior that the Dao, his words, it's the ultimate nature of all things. And again, his words, it is of a scope more vast than our imagination can conceive. End quote. So it's not really the way that most people who believe in God conceive their God to be. The Tao is kind of impersonal. It's it's not a personality with a name and an identity who, who makes choices and, and that sort of thing. You might want to think about it almost in a way. Don't don't overdo the analogy, but to wrap your head around it if you'd never encountered these ideas before, you might want to think of the Tao almost as being kind of like the force in Star Wars. But, you know, minus all the all the supernatural stuff and moving things with your mind and all that nonsense. But perhaps not surprisingly, George Lucas was a big reader of Joseph Campbell, author of Hero with a Thousand Faces. And uh, Joseph Campbell, in addition to being big on comparative mythology, was also uh, a fan and a student of Taoism as well. So not surprising that a lot of the ideas you find in Star Wars, you can trace back to Taoism and uh, to Zen Buddhism. You know, to George, to George Lucas by way of uh, Joseph Campbell. So the Tao is like the ultimate uh, force or reality of, of nature and existence. And at least as I understand it and as I read it, it, it's not really to be thought of as supernatural, but rather as just a part of nature. So the idea of a Taoist is not to try and, and influence and steer the Tao because you can't do that, but instead to to grasp it and to kind of put yourself in harmony with it as much as possible. Now, another concept that's prominent in Taoism is the concept of balance and the idea that things can create their opposite and that opposites depend on each other for existence. For example, if you didn't have something that was tall, you wouldn't know to label something else as short, that kind of thing, right? If you didn't know what hot was, it would be hard to say what cold was. And so not only do, do opposites depend on each other, but they can create each other. If you go too far to one extreme in something, it can sometimes lead to an extreme in another way. So Lao Tzu writes this, quote, Being and non-being create each other. Difficult and easy support each other. Long and short define each other. High and low depend on each other. Before and after follow each other. End quote. And another one from Lao Tzu. Fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after money and security and your heart will never unclench. Care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. End quote. And then this quote comes from Chuangzu. Too much pleasure? Yang has too much influence. Too much suffering? Yin has too much influence. When one of these outweighs the other, it is as if the seasons came at the wrong times. The balance of cold and heat is destroyed. The body of man suffers. Too much happiness, too much unhappiness. Out of due time, men are thrown off balance. So this concept of balance and this concept of opposites depending on each other and defining each other and so on, 
is best symbolized by the very well-known yin-yang symbol that people kind of understand superficially, but it's like many things when you really ponder its deeper implications, it's more profound than you might think. Now, another thing that's prominent in Taoism is the concept of water, that, that we should be like water, seek to imitate water, that water has all these really neat properties that make it uniquely powerful and adaptable. Water has no shape. It takes on the shape of whatever container or, or thing that it's in. It adapts to the moment. It can be simultaneously soft and yet very powerful and strong. So you find a lot of modern-day Taoists, like Bruce Lee, for example, often talking about water and, and be like water, etc. So here's Lao Tzu on being like water. Quote, the supreme good is like water, which nourishes all things without trying to. It is content with the low places that people disdain. Thus, it is like the Tao. End quote. And another one from Lao Tzu. Quote, the gentlest thing in the world overcomes the hardest thing in the world. And one last one on this topic from Lao Tzu. Quote, nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. End quote. So yeah, water is nourishing, water is soft, and so on, but it can wear through rock. Now, another concept of Taoism is the idea of being benevolent, or at least benign. Um, being, like, not of, of ill will toward your fellow men and towards nature, but being, at the same time, nonconformist, and doing all this in a natural unself-conscious kind of a way, like not being a nonconformist to feel cool about being a nonconformist, but just because that's who you are, or not being benevolent because you're trying so hard to be a do-gooder, but just being benevolent because you're allowing your true nature to express itself. So Chuangzu has some great stuff on these sorts of ideas. This is from a section of The Way of Chuangzu called The Man of Tao. Quote, the man in whom Tao acts without impediment harms no other being by his actions, yet he does not know himself to be kind, to be gentle. The man in whom Tao acts without impediment does not bother with his own interests and does not despise others who do. He does not struggle to make money and does not make a virtue of poverty. He goes his way without relying on others and does not pride himself on walking alone. While he does not follow the crowd, he won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to him. Disgrace and shame do not deter him. He is not always looking for right and wrong, always deciding yes and no. End quote. Another one from Chuangzu on this topic. This is called The Empty Boat. Quote, if a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again, and yet again, and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. And one last one from Chuangzu called Advising the Prince where there's a prince who's asking a Taoist sage who apparently is like some sort of a hermit, which was very common, especially for sages as they got older. And so 
the prince says to this sage, I have desired to see you for a long time. Tell me if I am doing right. I want to love my people, and by the exercise of justice to put an end to war. Is this enough? By no means, said the recluse. Your, quote, love for your people puts them in mortal danger. Your exercise of justice is the root of war after war. Your grand intentions will end in disaster. If you set out to accomplish something great, you only deceive yourself. Your love and justice are fraudulent. They are mere pretexts for self-assertion, for aggression. One action will bring on another, and in the chain of events, your hidden intentions will be made plain. So right away, you see there's this, you know, advice to the ruler who wants to do great things to stop all that, because trying to do great things using those means is not going to end well. Another Taoist concept that people sometimes have a hard time wrapping their head around is the concept of Wu Wei, W-U-W-E-I, which translates roughly from the Chinese, as I understand it, and I don't speak Chinese, so I have to rely on other people's translations, as inactive action. The idea is that when you're truly a master, whatever that means, that you can simultaneously get done what needs to get done without, you know, being in a flurry of activity the way a lesser person would. So Lao Tzu writes, The Tao never does anything, yet through it all things are done. The master does nothing, yet he leaves nothing undone, end quote. And I think you can see this in a lot of places. When you see someone who's truly a master of some skill and you watch them doing their skill, most of the time, especially when they're really, you know, kind of in the zone or whatever, you can see they're so relaxed, they almost look bored sometimes. And yet they're doing really amazing things. You know, if you, you watch some true master martial artist, I can remember, uh, I haven't taken it in many years, but back when I used to take jujitsu, I used to watch my teacher who was, I forget, like, a, you know, something third degree black belt or whatever. And he, he'd go in and, and he'd be sparring against, you know, a guy who could, who could take me out. No problem. Some blue belt or something. And my jujitsu teacher would just take this guy down and, you know, put him in a choke or whatever and make him submit. And, and my teacher was like, not even, it didn't even look like he was trying. It looked like any minute he might fall asleep. He was just so calm. But of course, when you really are a master at something, that calmness becomes yet another asset, you know, or if you watch someone who's a real master at anything complicated, surfing, uh, shooting, uh, casting a fly rod, anything where someone is really not just, not just competent at it, not just good at it, but like in that Zen level and you watch them do this thing that, that takes years to learn and they do it as calmly as a normal person, you know, putting on a sock. So inactive action, right? And, and also, um, this concept acknowledges that in many situations, literally the best thing to do is not to be active. And of course, the Taoists would say this is the case most, if not all the time, when you're talking about rulers, that a lot of the times, if you want peace and happiness and justice, and you're a ruler, the best thing you could do is make so that people hardly even know you exist. And of course, Taoist writings in general include a lot of paradoxes, or at least seeming paradoxes and word plays and so on. And so this concept of Wu Wei of inactive action fits right in. Now, there are people who take Taoism as if it's a religion. These are sometimes called religious Taoists to be differentiated from philosophical Taoists. 
And in, in religious Taoism, the, the sages are treated as if they're deities and there are rituals and all kinds of things like that. And to me, that's all kind of silly and totally goes against the teachings of at least all the Taoist sages that I've read. And I, I've read most of the big names. I can't claim that I've read every single one of them, but I don't see anything in their teachings that would condone some sort of ritualistic organized religion. That seems the complete opposite of what they were all about. Uh, personally, I find religious Taoism... Like any kind of ritualistic organized religion, kind of silly, and um, again contradicting a lot of the actual teachings of Taoism itself. Um, and and I agree more with the philosophical Taoists. So um, Deng Ming Dao, the author of The Scholar Warrior, writes this about Taoism: There is no heaven, and there is no hell. There doesn't need to be. Our hubris is the quintessential form of retribution. We create our own suffering. End quote. And again, Deng Ming Dao, quote, In short, the Taoists eliminated the usual basis for religion. The ultimate justification for spirituality was not in the promise of an afterlife, not in the gods, not in ritual, and not in clerical authority, but in the honest and personal exploration of this life and this time. Taoists were the mavericks of the spiritual world. They did not care for conformity or for the attitudes of the herd. All they cared about was the honest search for truth and the direct experiencing of the Tao, end quote. So Taoism, at least as I see it and as I understand it and interpret it, is completely compatible with someone like me who has no religion. And I think it also could potentially be compatible with somebody who has another religion. I've even seen some very interesting writings, some of them going way back to medieval times, of people who were mixing Christianity with Taoism and things like that. And then, of course, there's uh, Zen Buddhism, which in a lot of ways is Buddhism mixed with Taoism. So, you know, whatever your own personal beliefs might happen to be, Taoism at least potentially has, I think anyway, things to offer you and things that that you can learn from. And, you know, I'm not throwing any of this out there to try and portray myself as some sort of a, a guru, some sort of a sage, some sort of a bodhisattva. I mean, I believe very much in the old Buddha saying of if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Um, I'm I'm just a, a humble student, a humble walker on the path myself, and I'm just throwing out some of the things that I've learned or that I find interesting in the hopes that maybe you'll find some of it useful and, and then you can adapt some of it to you. Because um, I think a big part of this whole thing is adapting what works for you, what makes sense to you uh, in your life with your circumstances. And uh, to do anything different than that would be completely contradictory to the entire spirit of what these ancient Chinese sages who started all these ideas were all about. Now, there are other philosophies that have a pretty big uh, number of similarities to Taoism. One that I'll, I'll mention that's uh, more in the Western tradition, but I think has a lot of parallels, is Stoicism. There's a lot of things in Taoism and Stoicism that match up pretty well. Not not 100%, not everything. But, you know, for example, in Stoicism, there's an emphasis on the internal and on being undeterred by physical hardships and setbacks and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of similar sentiments to be found in Taoism. Um, another thing that's very prominent in Stoicism that's also to be found in Taoism is the notion of submitting to the things in life that you just can't control that are out of your hands. So that, you know, nature, those sorts of things. You know, the, the notion that your well-being and happiness shouldn't depend on very ephemeral things that might change or end any time, I think, is found in both philosophies. 
And then Zen Buddhism um, is very closely connected to Taoism in lots of ways. In fact, many people describe Zen Buddhism as simply Buddhism um, mixed with Taoism. Some people go even further and say it's basically Taoism with sort of a little, you know, Buddhist veneer tacked onto it. Um, Because what happened is, as Buddhism, of course, originated in the the Himalayas of kind of northern India, Nepal area. And um, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there are reasons, I'm just not enough of an expert on the history of it to say, Buddhism never became huge in India, even though that's that's sort of the homeland of the Buddha. Uh, Buddhism instead, over the centuries, became more prominent east of India, in parts of China and in sort of Southeast Asia. And what seems to have happened is, by the time that it spread through China and East Asia and made it to Japan during the samurai era, it had um, fused with Taoism so that by the time it reached Japan, it was Zen Buddhism, which is the, the main philosophy of the samurai. Now, Taoism, as I've mentioned before, very libertarian and in some cases flat-out anarchist uh, of a philosophy when it comes to the attitude towards the state and authority and power. So here are some some uh, choice cuts from Lao Tzu on this topic, and this might explain or make clear to you why uh, Murray Rothbard, of all people, was um, very positive on on Taoism. So Lao Tzu says, quote, Stop trying to control. Let go of fixed plans and concepts, and the world will govern itself. The more prohibitions you have, the less virtuous people will be. The master says, I let go of all desire for the common good, and the good becomes common as grass. Another one from Lao Tzu, quote, Governing a large country is like frying a small fish. You ruin it with too much poking. Center your country in the Tao, and evil will have no power. Give evil nothing to oppose, and it will disappear by itself, end quote. So I wonder, you know, what would Lao Tzu's solution be to the war on drugs, or what would his answer be to the war on drugs, I guess is a better way to put it, right? What do you think that that's a great way to try and make the people more virtuous? I think he'd think not, and I think the facts would probably back up his analysis. Um, again, Lao Tzu, quote, When taxes are too high, people go hungry. When the government is too intrusive, people lose their spirit. Another one. When the master governs, the people are hardly aware that he exists. And one more from Lao Tzu on, along this line. The more prohibitions you have, the less virtuous people will be. The more weapons you have, the less secure people will be. And he's talking to the rulers there, by the way, when he says the more weapons you have. He's not preaching sword control or anything like that. Um, he's talking about rulers who, you know, spend their people into oblivion tax their people into oblivion to build up huge war machines. Um, The more weapons you have, the less secure people will be. The more subsidies you have, the less self-reliant people will be. End quote. Now, Taoism is not at all a pacifist philosophy. Very much is uh, in line with the idea of defending yourself. Lots of great martial artists and warriors of history have been Taoists. But though they don't explicitly stated, at least that I can think of, all of all of what Taoist philosophers say adds up to basically a, a, an early proto-version of something like the non-aggression principle. The idea that violence is only to be used as a last resort in pure defense, 
and uh, should only be used to the degree needed for defense. In other words, you know, not an ounce more violence than what is the minimum necessary to protect yourself from a threat. Deng Mingdao, author of The Scholar Warrior, writes, quote, A Taoist does not exploit others and does not suffer him or herself to be exploited, end quote. Taoism also has a lot of connection in terms of its ideas with permaculture, which is not exactly a philosophy, but kind of is. It's a, it's a design system and I guess sort of a design philosophy in a way of looking at nature and of harnessing nature um, to help you know, human beings flourish better and uh, you know, typically applied to agriculture, but it can actually be applied to a lot of other things. And Taoism meshes up with a lot of the ideas and attitudes of permaculture very well, especially in terms of uh, the Taoist ideas of nature. So Deng Ming Dao writes, quote, Taoists never concentrated on dominating nature. They never thought this possible. Instead, they tried to understand the principles within nature and harmonize with them, end quote. If you're at all familiar with permaculture, that's, you know, really close, almost word for word to, to some of the things you'll find in the in the big books of permaculture out there. Um, the Taoist conception of nature is that everything is interconnected. Everything is ultimately part of one whole. Relationships in nature are always mutualistic, even in cases where they don't appear so at first glance. And also that no one is really in charge when it comes to nature. And in that way, in both how they describe nature and also how they describe uh, human society, this again links back to uh, connecting Taoism to libertarianism, the idea that modern economists call spontaneous order. I think Murray Rothbard even pointed out that the Taoists were writing about spontaneous order in society without using that, that term that's invented by you know, more modern thinkers. But basically the idea that if you leave people alone, they will naturally you know, start to work in, in harmonious sorts of ways as long as no one's coming in and, and uh, being predators upon them. And the same thing, you know, nature functions when you just let it be nature. And when you try and intervene into it, um, in, in a in an aggressive sort of a fashion, it ruins everything. Um, that the best you could do was sort of understand nature and kind of surf along on it for your own benefit. So anyway, I hope all that gives you at least sort of an inkling of what Taoism is all about and, and maybe some things that you could learn from it. Um, it. This is only scratching the surface, of course, you know, you, you can't in, in this short amount of time of one podcast episode, you can't get into all the different facets of it. But I, for one, find it fascinating and interesting and useful, and so I hope that you will as well. For the rest of the episode, I want to talk specifically about the concept, the ideal of what's called a scholar-warrior. And one thing I can remember very vividly is how um, I already had a little bit of familiarity with Taoism, but I came across, and I probably was just like searching in Amazon many, many years ago, I came across this book called The Scholar Warrior, An Introduction to the Tao in Everyday Life by a guy named Deng Ming Dao. And I think the book is like around 20, 30 years old. And what he does is he applies a lot of Taoist ideas to modern Western, uh, to a modern Western audience. And I think he's pretty good at putting a lot of these ideas in ways that make sense for the modern Western uh, reader and thinker. And when I read this book, what really made me have one of these eureka sort of moments was when uh, he started talking about this notion of what the scholar warrior is. 
Now, I'll admit that some of the ideas in this book may not be pure Taoism, whatever that is, if there is such a thing. And I'll also admit that some of like the the nutritional and herbal advice in the book, I didn't pay much attention to. Some of the stuff he talks about, I consider to be kind of woo-woo, um, you know, a little, little bit too new agey and supernatural-ish for me, at least in some cases. But that said, even though I, I don't buy every single specific thing in the book, the overall concepts of the book I found very, very enlightening. So this concept of the scholar warrior, the concept of the individual who cultivates their skill and their knowledge and their wisdom in such a way and in such a well-rounded fashion that they sort of transcend what most people typically um, amount to in their life. That That's what we're going to be talking about. This is an idea that is present in a lot of the Taoist texts from ancient times, but that Deng Ming Dao really pulls together and expresses in a, in a coherent, cohesive sort of a way in this book, The Scholar Warrior. So the first thing that characterizes The Scholar Warrior is excellence and skill. In many ways, similar to the ancient Greek concept of arete, which um, if any of you have studied ancient Greek history, you might be familiar with. I might do an episode on the concept in the future. I find it very fascinating. This is what Deng Ming Dao writes on having not just skill, but skill in a, in a variety of areas. Quote, skill is the essence of the scholar warrior. Such a person strives to develop a wide variety of talents to a greater degree than even a specialist in a particular field. End quote. So the idea is that you develop and master techniques, and then the Taoists say you get to a place where You've mastered the the techniques so much that you actually transcend them. And so one of my personal favorite passages in The Way of Chuangzu, uh, called Cutting Up an Ox. Prince Wenhui's cook was cutting up an ox, out went a hand, down went a shoulder. He planted a foot, he pressed a knee, the ox fell apart. With a whisper, the bright cleaver murmured like a gentle wind. Rhythm, timing like a sacred dance, like the mulberry grove, like ancient harmonies. Good work, the prince exclaimed. Your method is faultless. Method, said the cook, laying aside his cleaver. What I follow is Tao, beyond all methods. When I first began to cut up oxen, I would see before me the whole ox, all in one mass. After three years, I no longer saw this mass. I saw the distinction. But now I see nothing with the eye. My whole being apprehends. My senses are idle. The spirit, free to work without plan, follows its own instinct, guided by natural line, by the secret opening, the hidden space. My cleaver finds its own way. I cut through no joint, chop no bone. A good cook needs a new chopper once a year. He cuts. A poor cook needs a new one every month. He hacks. I have used the same cleaver 19 years. It has cut up a thousand oxen. The edge is as keen as if newly sharpened. There are spaces in the joints. The blade is thin and keen. When this thinness finds that space, there's all the room you need. It goes like a breeze. Hence, I have this cleaver 19 years as if newly sharpened. And then he goes on to elaborate on those ideas a little bit more. And then at the end, the prince says, quote, This is it. My cook has shown me how I ought to live my own life, end quote. So this idea that you become such a master at something that you transcend 
the individual techniques that you had to learn on the road to mastery. Now, you had to learn those techniques. You can't skip that step. But then once you you have mastered them, you get to a point, hopefully, ideally, where you go past that. And I think any one of us has one or maybe several things that we've gotten so good at that we're in that sort of a, of a mode, whether it's playing an instrument or martial arts or casting a fly rod or anything that, that takes some real skill. Now, part of this uh, excellence and mastery is also transcending or, or leaving behind any type of ego, any, any type of, you know, immature desire to be the best and to win. Don't worry about that stuff. Um, Chuang Tzu writes in a section called the need to win quote, when an archer is shooting for nothing, he has all his skill. If he shoots for a brass buckle, he is already nervous. If he shoots for a prize of gold, he goes blind or sees two targets. He is out of his mind. His skill is not changed but the prize divides him. He cares. He thinks more of winning than of shooting, and the need to win drains him of power. End quote. Now, to be a scholar warrior, not only do you develop excellence and skill and mastery, but you do it in a wide variety of areas. This is what is sometimes called maximizing versatility in the more modern works on this subject. Um, terms like well-rounded and renaissance man also come to mind notion of someone who has mastered multiple things, um, preferably some pretty diverse things, preferably things that are really different from each other, not just like, I'm really good at guitar and also at bass guitar and also at mandolin. Like, yeah, that's nice, but man, what if you were, you know, really good at things that were really different from each other? Specifically, skills that might seem, at least, unrelated or maybe even kind of contradictory in a way should be pursued deliberately in order to achieve that balance we talked about before. So, Deng Mingdao writing on some potential combinations, quote, Doctor and swordsman, musician and knight, the scholar-warrior uses each part of his or her overall ability to keep the whole in balance and to attain the equilibrium for following the Tao, end quote. Another quote from Deng Mingdao, We all need balance between physical and mental, inner and outer, social and personal responsibilities. In an age of increasing specialization, an acceptance of one's job and career as the primary element of life, we are in danger of becoming too narrow, end quote. While maximizing versatility through a wide variety of knowledge and skills, one finds inevitably that skills and knowledge and wisdom in one area, in one you know, genre, in one thing, inevitably has relevance and lessons to other areas of life, and we discover that things are more connected than we realize. You, you suddenly realize that, you know, some of the skills and ideas that you use if you're a fighter also have relevance to chess. And then also some of the same concepts or skills or what have you have relevance to dancing or to music. And you start to see that, that one area of excellence provides insight and wisdom to another. And you become a, a better person for it. And again, I don't claim to be a master in any of this stuff. I'm a guy that's just following the path as a student myself. But uh, this is what Chuang Tzu has to say about seeing the connections between things. Great knowledge sees all in one. Small knowledge breaks down into the many. Now, how do you achieve this skill and mastery and all these things? 
Well, by a process of self-cultivation. And that's a multifaceted thing that that requires some discipline, requires a lot of time and, and effort. And it's never really done, just like cultivating a piece of land. And a big part of this self-cultivation is literally getting to know and ultimately uh, to master, but not in a forceful way, but just in sort of a harmonious way by understanding who you are, to, to know yourself. Lao Tzu writes, quote, Knowing others is intelligence. Knowing yourself is true wisdom. Mastering others is strength. Mastering yourself is true power. End quote. So... You know, the way I think of it is like I, as an individual human being, have the responsibility to myself and to the world to try to live up to my potential, while at the same time realizing that no one is ever actually going to accomplish that goal. Because it's one of those old, you know, kind of cliche things of it's not a place with a destination, it's just an endless road. But the mere striving for excellence the mere act of continuous self-cultivation, even though you never arrive at any endpoint, is itself a victory. Because the real goal is simply to keep walking the path. And there's times, and we've all been there, there's times where you find yourself able to make quick, easy, seemingly effortless progress on something. There's other times where it's slow, it's painstaking, it's slogging, it's pulling teeth just to take the next step or to go through another practice of something. Now, another aspect of the scholar warrior is that despite having a lot of skill and knowledge, the scholar warrior has humility and not in a, in a phony manipulative sort of false humility or false modesty, but just in a genuine sense, because um, kind of like the old Dunning Kruger effect in psychology, where the better you are at something, the more you realize your own limitations. Um, the, the more you follow the path of the scholar warrior, the more you realize that, you know, you, you do have limitations, despite whatever skills you might be building up. There's always someone better. And also to realize that no one, no matter how skilled or how wise, is infallible or should be seen as um, you know an authority to unquestioningly uh, believe or listen to whatever they say. Lao Tzu writes, quote, A great nation is like a great man. When he makes a mistake, he realizes it. Having realized it, he admits it. Having admitted it, he corrects it. He considers those who point out his faults as his most benevolent teachers. End quote. By the way, sounds like the opposite of what most Americans uh, do when you point out any of the skeletons in Team America's closet. Just saying. Now, I think it's worth mentioning specifically the warrior part of the scholar warrior. Um, and I'll say for the record, I am unequivocally opposed to any form of aggressive violence or even threatening it. Um, but that said, I'm not a pacifist because I do believe in defensive violence. But I want to specify, I mean def defensive very strictly in the literal sense, like using violence in response to violence that has already either been um, initiated against you or has been directly and plausibly threatened. And plausible is important too because you know, if the guy with no arms and legs and, and no friends to do his dirty work threatens to come punch you in the face, like, that's not plausible. Even though he might have bad intent, he's limited by reality, right? So it's got to be somebody who means to harm you and actually does have the ability to do so in some real way. That's the only time when I see violence as justifiable. 
So I think that unless you're a diehard pacifist, that martial arts of various types, preferably a variety, should be part of kind of your scholar warrior path that you're walking. And not just the traditional martial arts that, that come to mind right away when you hear that term, but including modern ones. You know, the Taoists used weaponry when it was available. They used swords, they used spears, they used a bow and arrow. And um, some Zen Buddhist samurai in Japan in the late feudal period used firearms. Uh, Miyamoto Musashi actually mentions actually mentions the usage of firearms in his book of five rings unarmed fighting you know um, op- open hand empty hand fighting without weapons um, and fighting with ancient weapons and fighting with modern weapons all these things actually do require skill to be good at and there's uh, lessons to be learned from any of these skills so you know I would argue that the potential for individual skill and excellence is not only to be found in hand-to-hand martial arts, but also for things like uh, pistol craft and rifle craft, just as much as for the sword and the bow. And, and again, I think anyone who would deny this is someone who's not really familiar with uh, skill with firearms and how much true uh, practice and mastery it takes to really become proficient. This is what Deng Mingdao writes about um, scholar warriors in times gone gone past in China. Quote, These warriors were no mere killers. Whenever they were not on an imperial quest, they were members of the court and masters of their own fiefdoms. They had cultivated manners and were well-educated. In their leisure time, they pursued literary and fine arts. They were gentlemen and gracious ladies who appreciated ephemeral beauty and fine scholarship. The blood they shed was always left to the cold of night or the privacy of lonely duels with worthy opponents. They saw no conflict between the ability to paint and the ability to wield a sword. For them, being a warrior was impossible without intelligence. End quote. So these are not one-dimensional, you know, dumb jock or, or sort of cardboard cutouts of, of uh, soldiers from central casting. The idea of the scholar warrior is an intelligent person who has lots of other skills besides just the ability to inflict pain and harm. So we could probably find a lot of examples from schol- of scholar warriors from throughout history, even people who were not exposed to Taoist ideas, but who through their life kind of embodied this ideal. So aside from the original Taoist sages and monks themselves, many of whom, by the way, were um, uh, master swordsmen and martial artists in addition to all their scholarly pursuits, um, I'm going to mention a few names that I would consider scholar warriors. The samurai warrior Miyamoto Musashi. Um, He's an interesting enough cat that I may do more detail on him in a future episode. Uh, He's the author of the famous Book of Five Rings on strategy and fighting. And uh, Musashi developed a new style of fighting with two swords simultaneously, a long sword in one hand and a short sword in the other, which was at the time... Uh, a radical departure from traditional techniques where normally one would only use one sword at a time with both hands at once. And, and Musashi, in addition to being the greatest swordsman of his day in the samurai era, was also a, a scholar and, and literate and studied a bunch of other things besides uh, sword fighting and other forms of fighting. In fact, he even wrote about pursuing other forms of knowledge as being beneficial to the person who truly wanted to master martial arts and strategy. 
This is from Musashi's Book of Five Rings, quote, A proper warrior must be versed in several paths. Not only must he devote his time and energy to perfecting his martial art, but he should also strive to master other paths as well. A warrior should be comfortable not only with the sword, but also with the brush. He should not only be able to take life, but he must be able to create beauty as well. Even those warriors who are not well adapted to poetry or painting should strive for perfection in these areas. The real path of the warrior is the pursuit of excellence in all that they do. In fact, uh, Musashi's ideas were so um, similar to Taoism that he titled a part of the Book of Five Rings, the Book of Water. And he says that he did this in his words, quote, because water changes to adapt to its environment. Thus, water is the inspiration for winning strategy, end quote. A few more quotes I'll leave you with uh, on the topic of Musashi. No matter what you study, the bow, the spear, walking, running, writing, or the swords, it will seem very difficult at first, and you may think you will never be able to do it properly. However, as time passes and you continue to practice, you will become more accustomed to your field of endeavor, and it will become easy. With time, it requires no thought and becomes nothing but reflex. Another one from Musashi. As a martial artist, you may use the bow and be an archer. You may use the spear and be a spearman. Or you may use the gun and be a mar- be a marksman. Which, by the way, uh, is interesting, right? Talking about firearms. Those are supposed to be no-no for samurai. According to that stupid Tom Cruise movie. And one last quote from Musashi. You should study all things to broaden your life. You should specialize in several things to polish your life. Um, another guy I throw out there as an easy example of a scholar warrior would be, of course, Bruce Lee. Who, in case you don't know, was not just a movie star and a top-notch martial artist himself. He was also a very serious uh, student of philosophy, both Eastern and Western. He had, I think, a master's degree in philosophy. Very well-read guy. And if you've ever read something like The Tao of Jeet Kune Do, you can see a lot of that in there. This is not just some dumb jock. Very intelligent guy. Um, Bruce Lee, in his martial arts, sought to transcend the notion of styles or of schools in martial arts, which is also something that Musashi explicitly talked about in the Book of Five Rings. So again, this idea of you become such a master that you transcend all the sort of specifics of this style or that style. So at this point, I want to present to you my sort of humble attempt at uh, life hacking the concept of the scholar warrior and uh, adding another word to it. Sorry if it makes it even more clunky, but this concept I've been I've been thinking about for quite a long time. It's even mentioned in a little intro blurb for the show, the gorilla scholar warrior. Um, what this is and how I think it can apply to modern day life. So I believe in individual self cultivation and maximizing versatility and all these other things and pursuing excellence. But of course, I very much understand the limitations of living in current times. I also understand the limitations of having work and family obligations. So while I wish that I could spend more time devoted solely to self-cultivation and and the path of all this, um, there's, there's a lot going on. I can't there's only so many hours in a day, so many days in a week, and there's a lot of other things I got to do. Like all of you, I've got family stuff going on. You know, in my case, I've got little kids. Many of you listening may may have that. Um, even if you don't, I'm sure you have some sort of family obligations that not just that you need to take care of, but that you want to take care of. And in addition to that, I've got my, my main job, teaching history. I've got 
um, several different hobbies and things that I'm working on at any given time. I've got this podcast, which uh, takes more time than you might think if you've never done it. Takes a lot of a lot of before and after work for each episode that's done here. Um, not not trying to you know play myself a tune on the littlest uh, sad fiddle in the world, but just trying to to let you know if if, if you don't really have a concept of this, um, that, you know when you hear me podcast for forty minutes or an hour, there's hours and hours of before and after stuff that went into all that. So there's a lot going on. Um, I'm not willing to neglect my career. I, I put my all into teaching uh, my, my college history courses, uh, which, which I enjoy and which I do find fulfilling most of the time. Um, I'm not willing to neglect my family. So I'm walking this scholar warrior path, but when I can and whatever means I have available to me, you know, I, I may not be able to devote as much time and resources to it as I otherwise would if, if all these other things weren't going on. So throwing in the word guerrilla here, what I mean by that. Uh, Dictionary.com defines guerrilla warfare as, quote, a type of military action using small, mobile, irregular forces to carry out surprise tactics against hostile, regular forces, end quote. Uh, So a guerrilla warrior would therefore be a type of fighter who operates in this fashion, who employs these sorts of tactics, is not regular, um, sort of operates when he can and when it's to his advantage, uh, uses whatever resources might creatively be employed, uh, whatever might be available, even if it's not maybe what would have been your first choice for a particular purpose. But, you know, kind of the obstacle is the way type stuff, right? Figuring out how to, uh, as much as possible, turn deficiencies and disadvantages actually into advantages. So a guerrilla scholar warrior then, as I'm defining this concept, is one who follows the path of the Taoist scholar warrior, but who does so in an irregular fashion, using unconventional tactics in order to defeat long odds and a powerful system that we're all ensnared in to some degree or another. Um, if you're listening to this, you know, you have some connection with the system, quote unquote. Um, you know, the only people who, who don't are people who live completely cut off as hermits in the middle of nowhere. And a person like that is not listening to podcasts. So we're using unconventional tactics in our, our self-cultivation process in order to defeat long odds and an overwhelmingly powerful web of a system that, at least on paper, has all the advantages. But in reality, just like Goliath, uh, this system that, that tries to you know, keep us all down in a way and prevent us from truly cultivating ourselves and reaching our potential, just like Goliath, this system, while it appears strong, does have weaknesses, which in fact are the result of its own overwhelming size and power. Very Taoist sort of thing, right? This big, strong Leviathan, but it actually, because it's a big, strong Leviathan, has inherent weaknesses, just like uh, Goliath had inherent weaknesses and vulnerabilities to somebody like David, precisely because of his huge size and power. So the idea of the guerrilla scholar warrior is being crafty, um, being irregular, making use of time and resources when you have them, but understanding you can't be a full-time soldier, so to speak, um, on the scholar warrior path. You can only do what you can do, but trying to make the most of what resources you have, just like a crafty guerrilla fighter would in a literal you know, war. So 
just um, a few things that, that I'm doing currently or that I plan to do in the near future um, on the Guerrilla Scholar Warrior path in my own life, as time and resources allow. One is martial arts, both uh, weapons and non-weapons. I've got some training and experience in, in both, but it's not a, not a huge amount in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I think I'm reasonably competent to defend myself in kind of basic situations, but there's always more to learn. And a lot of this stuff I've been away from for a while. So that's something, again, time and resources allowing um, that I, that I want to, you know, add more to my repertoire in that area. Uh, music. I've, I've been uh, very into playing music since I was about 12 years old. So, um, you know, never stopped doing that. Uh, physical fitness, and in my case at least, that's something that um, I've neglected the past bunch of years. I've let the stresses of modern life and career and having little kids and having all kinds of, you know, constant uh, things going wrong and stresses and obligations and whatever. And unfortunately, like so many people in today's America, I've let my physical fitness deteriorate. Um, and uh, it's not at all what it used to be 10 or 15 years ago. So, that's another thing on my list that um, I'm on a decent streak anyway. The past few weeks, I've, I've been pretty consistent about working out and, and taking my hikes that I like to do and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, I really just need to keep grinding at that. And I'm sure at least some of you listening to me are in a similar boat when it comes to that. Um, meditation is another thing that I do and I want to do more of. And I think that meditation of some form or another is a very important part, along with martial arts and intellectual pursuits and artistic pursuits, is a very important part of being a true, well-rounded scholar-warrior. I think you need to find whatever form or forms of meditation work for you. You I've experimented with several. I've found some that work for me better than others. And then whichever ones work well for you, um, do it consistently. That's another thing that I've had a problem with. You know, I'll get on a streak where for four or five days or a week or two even, I'll be consistent about doing my my meditation every day. And then I'll get derailed. You know, I'll let all the all the crap of modern life derail me from continuing to do that. And then, of course, that, you know, you stop getting all, all those benefits that you get from meditation. I don't believe in anything supernatural, uh, but I think there's, there's good science behind uh, a lot of methods of meditation really do cause your, your brain to do certain things that are beneficial and uh, even cause your body to do things that are beneficial. Um, that, that's just, that's been my experience. And I, and I think there is some science to back that up. I don't think you have to believe in any, any weird new agey woo woo stuff, uh, in order to find that there are real world benefits from meditation. And then just sort of miscellaneous skills, you know, um, learning how to, how to fix a thing, uh, every now and then, you know, just the other day, uh, I, I taught myself how to um, take apart the the drain in my bathroom sink and and uh, clear a clog in there. And I'd never done that before. Like a lot of people these days, I you know wasn't taught a lot of these things growing up. So um, I you know taught myself how to do this the other day, and it's not a huge deal. Um, you know, there's probably probably a lot of people listening to this that are like, duh. But you know, whatever it is that um, you know, when you come across an obstacle, assuming it's not something that's like a real dangerous thing to try to fix you know, try and figure out how to fix it yourself first. You can always go to a professional or a more knowledgeable friend if you get stuck. Um, so that, that's another thing that I think is part of the scholar warrior repertoire is learning how to kind of fix things and overcome obstacles, at least as much as feasible. 
So aside from all that, um, I'm continuing always uh, constantly to cultivate intellect and knowledge. Um, I'm trying to work on, and this sort of goes along with meditation too, being more present-centered and not dwelling on the past or the future excessively to the point of stressing yourself out. I think that's something that's not unique to me, I'm sure. And um, another thing is I'm trying to drop things in my life that are unnecessary hindrances as much as possible. And that can be everything from uh, excessive stuff lying around that you may not use as much as you used to. I've been trying to clear out as much of that as I can. Uh, it's quite a process. Another thing is clearing out, you know, if there's any relationships in your life that are kind of useless and are just more of a hindrance than anything, let them go. And um, any hobbies or skills, you know, we're all about looking at uh, learning different skill sets and maximizing versatility. But I'm sure every single one of us, not just me, has had a case where you start pursuing some skill and then it's just, it's not, it's not for you. It's not what you thought it would be. You don't um, go very far with it. And it's not as important to you as you might have originally thought. So, so letting that slide. Again, I, I really want to stress, please understand, I'm not at all claiming to be any type of, of guru or anything like that. Um, I'm, I'm uh, an, an eternal student and a, and a practitioner, but you know, I hope that in this way of looking at things and thinking about life and thinking about yourself and uh, your, your non-physical assets, your skills and knowledge and so on, that um, there's something that you found of value here for your own life, even if you've already been doing some of these things, but to think about it in kind of a cohesive way. And um, that from what I'm saying and from what, what uh, the ancient Taoist said and so on, that you'll pick and choose what works for you and adapt it as necessary, um, just like a good guerrilla fighter would. So, you know, to do anything else would not be in keeping with the whole guerrilla scholar warrior notion. Anyway, a um, couple quotes from Deng Mingdao, the scholar warrior, quote, Uncertainty of the future inspires no fear. Whatever happens, the scholar warrior has the confidence to face it. And another one. In an age of increasing specialization and acceptance of one's job and career as the primary element of life, we are in danger of becoming too narrow, end quote. So, the exact hodgepodge, the exact gumbo of skill sets and knowledge, of course, should be unique to each individual. But again, uh, some of the things that I think should be worked into your repertoire in some fashion, um, some sort of martial arts, um, even if you're a committed pacifist, there are, you know, Tai Chi and things like that that are, are not really about fighting that you can still get benefit from. Um, some sort of fitness regime or combination of fitness regimes some type of meditation or combination of different type of meditations. I think something musical should be part of your repertoire. Uh, singing, dancing, playing an instrument, composing, anything like that should be in there to some degree to make you a true well-rounded person. Um, something active that involves words also, I think, is a good idea. Fiction or nonfiction writing, poetry, blogging, journaling, uh, public speaking, podcasting, you know, whatever, but something where you're a producer, not just a consumer involving words. I mean, reading is great, but, you know, be active with words too. Um, intellectual pursuits of all types, whatever you're into, whatever you think um, you want to learn for its own sake or, or you think will be useful to you, by all means, pursue it. And um, of course, connected with that omnivorous, relentless reading should 
definitely be part of the Scholar Warrior palette. And also something that involves skillful use of the hands in conjunction with the mind. And musical instruments here, playing a musical instrument, which I already mentioned, uh, is something like this. But I would also consider any sort of uh, art you know, painting, sculpting, drawing, carving, anything else you could think of, or any sort of artisan thing, you know, being a, a working with wood, that sort of stuff. Um, learn something along those lines. I think there's great benefits there. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of other skill sets and, and knowledge areas uh, I haven't thought of that you probably think I should have included. And if that's the case, please feel free to let me know. Feel free to leave stuff like that in the comment section of this episode's show notes. And again, I, I can't stress this enough. I'm not claiming to be some sort of uh, guru or anything like that. I'm a student, okay? I'm just sharing stuff um, that I've found interesting and useful. And I'll, I hope that you'll find at least some of this way of thinking about things interesting and useful and that you'll then adapt it uh, for yourself as appropriate. So one last quote from Deng Mingdao and the Scholar Warrior, quote, you need go only as far on the path as you are comfortable and you need accept things only after you understand them and prove them in your own life. It is experience, not book learning or scripture, that is the best teacher, end quote. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.